chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. I feel it's appropriate to start at the crucifixion. Because there's no tomb without the cross, right? There's no resurrection without first death, as we looked at Friday night. Beginning in Actually, in Mark chapter 15, verse 22, then we'll lead up to chapter 16. Then they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they had crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scriptures was, and scripture was fulfilled, which said, And he was numbered with transgressors. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross, so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama samachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he is calling for Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was a son of God. And there were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Less and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene, 
Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. Chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is a place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The title of this sermon is Behold the Risen Lord. Behold the Risen Lord. I desire this morning, church, that you would see the glory of Jesus' resurrection. Have you ever watched a movie where it was based on a true story? You know, that's some people I know, that's their favorite kinds of movies. They're, they're real. They're not those crazy fantasy, sci-fi stuff. It's, it's real life. Well, if, if you've ever seen a, a good movie, especially a newer one that's based on a, on a true story, lots of times what happens is the end of the movie doesn't really finish with, you know, and they lived happily ever after. It doesn't finish with that kind of tone because it's real life. The movie doesn't show the happy couple riding off into the sunset or the struggling athlete winning the championship. Rather, the screen in movies like this, it goes black. And then real life pictures begin to scroll. And you have little subtext describing what happens in the rest of this real person's life. It's no longer the job of the actors and the actresses to, to portray what happens. Now it's just real life. Now it's these real pictures of these real people. A similar thing happens here. The Gospel of Mark ends at verse 8. You might be looking at your Bible and say, well, I have more words after verse 8. Well, the, the internal evidence of the Greek writing, the, the Greek language, as well as the manuscript evidence of archaeology leads the best scholars to conclude that the Gospel of Mark ends at the end of verse 8. That's why, in your Bibles, verse 9 and following should be in brackets, and there should be an explanation saying something like, the best manuscripts do not contain the rest of the chapter. So the rest of what's written in your Bibles in the Gospel of Mark in brackets was honestly, it seems, a, a good meaning attempt of the early church 
to put a nice ribbon on the end of this gospel because it kind of ends abruptly. Now, note that there's nothing heretical about what's written down here in the rest of the gospel. There's no false teaching. Almost all of it is, seems like it's taken from the other gospels and those accounts. So it lines up with the rest of Scripture. It's not heresy. It's not false teaching. But it seems like it's not necessarily the, the word of God, God's inspired word. We know from the other Gospels, of course, that Jesus did visit the rest of his disciples, not just these, these ladies. He had private meetings with some of his disciples. In fact, it says that he taught them the Old Testament for many days. I mean, in, in those other Gospels, he commissioned them to bring his Gospel to the rest of the world. So, why did Mark end this way? Why not include his ascending into glory, which is recorded for us in the book of Acts? Why leave out all of these other details about the resurrected Jesus Christ? Why just end with this announcement? Well, just like that screen that goes black at the end of a, of a movie based on a, on a true story, just like that, Mark would have wanted the reader to go and to actually see the real-life Christians that were alive in this time and talk to them. So instead of seeing the real-life pictures of, of real people, not actors, he would expect the reader to go to the real-life person that maybe lives around the block or on the other side of town. Go talk to them. They've seen him. That seems to be the intent of Mark. He would want the reader to go and ask them, what happened? I mean, I've heard about the resurrection, so obviously these ladies didn't go on just saying nothing. The, the word got out. Well, for us today, though, those people that witnessed the resurrected Christ spoke with him. Those people have long since passed away. However, you too can still talk to people today who have had an encounter with the risen Christ. Just look around you. This room, the place where you are at, is full of people who have met the risen Savior. So you don't have to wonder what happened in the rest of the story. You can go get your answers. Mark wants you, I believe today, to see Jesus' empty tomb, to see Jesus' finished work, and then to see Jesus for yourself. First of all, see Jesus' empty tomb. Verse 1 these three women have been following Jesus, it says here, serving throughout his ministry in Galilee. We read that in Mark 15, verse 40 and 41. They were faithful followers of Jesus Christ. They were there when he was crucified. They were, they were there and watched him be buried. 
And now they're back to anoint his body. And these women were faithful followers of Christ. Even, even though Jesus' other 12 disciples had scattered in Mark 14, verse 50, even though they all scattered, these ladies stayed by his side, though from a distance. They were loyal. And their loyalty came from their love for the Lord. They loved him dearly. They ministered to him. That is, they gave him whatever he needed. They provided for him so that he could focus on his ministry to the lost. Now, we know that these ladies loved Jesus because they brought these spices to honor him in his death. See, these spices that they had bought and were bringing to the tomb were spices which were used for burial. So, it seems, obviously, that they weren't expecting for Jesus to raise from the dead. They were expecting to come to a tomb with a corpse in it. But they loved the Lord, and they simply wanted to, just, wanted to say goodbye one more time. They wanted to honor him and show him that they loved him one last time. Verse 2 it's the first day of the week, very early on that day, where they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. This first day of the week was and is Sunday. Jewish religion holds their Sabbath on Saturday. But the events of this day, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the events of this day forever changed the day where people's, God's people would gather for worship changed it from Saturday to Sunday. And every Sunday, did you know that, Christian? Every Sunday, as you gather with God's saints, you celebrate the resurrection. So every Sunday is a little taste of Easter. But today we give special attention, and we're thankful that our nation is founded on the principles that it is, and still holds to some semblance of tradition where we get to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 3. These women, it says, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They were worried about moving that stone. They're probably beginning to devise a plan. How are we going to do this? We didn't really think this through, maybe. It's just us three ladies. And it's going to be very hard to move that stone. The stone covering the empty tomb, or excuse me, the stone covering the opening of the tomb normally weighed anywhere from 3,000 to 4,000 pounds. Well, how did they get, get it there in the first place? Well, it was usually cut on... On, a, on a, a piece of land that was higher than the opening of the tomb. So when they actually cut it to shape, they would just roll it and use gravity to roll it to the front of the tomb. So it wasn't really a physical feat of strong men moving the stone in place. But to remove the stone, you basically have to lift all of that weight. You no longer have gravity on your side.
So these ladies, they begin to wonder, and it seems worry about, well, how are we going to do this? But verse 4, looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. The stone here was rolled away. It doesn't say that the stone rolled away, but the stone was rolled away, meaning passively the stone, somebody moved the stone. The stone didn't move itself. Somebody moved that thing. Matthew 28, 2 says that an angel was the one who rolled that stone away. And this young man inside the tomb was an angel. He was wearing a white robe. And angels are often described as wearing white. After all, having come from God's presence to deliver God's message, this angel would be marked by that purity of the presence of God and that was communicated in his white clothing. And so, of course, the women were amazed. All throughout Scripture, when men and women are face-to-face with an angel, the usual response is worship and awe and fear because they are amazing creatures. The word amazed here is also translated alarmed or overwhelmed with wonder or even deeply distressed. This word is only used in Mark's gospel. For example, in Mark 14.33, it's used for Jesus when he came into that garden of Gethsemane and began to think and pray about drinking God's cup of wrath for sin. These women, likewise, were astonished, startled. It's like the the hair on the back of your neck standing up, chills running down your spine, or your ears ringing from shock. The reality of the resurrection stunned them. Friend, the the reality of the resurrection should grab your attention. You see, no other religion claims that their leader was raised from the dead. None. All of them claim that their leaders are dead and still dead. Maybe awaiting some future resurrection in their teachings, but no other religion claims this claim. We stand alone. Christ stands alone as the resurrected Savior. You need to be gripped by the reality of the resurrection. You need to not just passively, as we heard Friday night, not just passively deal with Jesus. He needs to grab your attention. There's nobody like him. Nobody else has risen from the dead. That should get your attention. Do we have your attention? See Jesus' empty tomb and believe. That's the expectation. Now that the Lord has your attention, second point is see Jesus' finished work. Now comes the explanation of what happened. Verse 6. 
And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is a place where they laid him. Now here's the announcement of what happened to Jesus. And even though Mark doesn't go on to describe the details of people seeing the resurrection of Jesus, seeing Christ alive again, there's no question, though, about its reality. This angel from the presence of God came to deliver truth, came to deliver a true, valid message, and that is that Jesus is alive. He says, Jesus is not here in the tomb. He is risen. Notice how he describes him. He's Jesus the Nazarene in verse 6. Jesus the Nazarene. His name is Jesus. That means God saves. You see, mankind needs to be saved. Otherwise, why would his name be God saves? Mankind, all of us, need to be saved, delivered from God's judgment against sin. And only the eternal God can save you from his eternal punishment. You see, you have sinned against God, friend. If you have not bowed the knee to him in repentance and faith, you are his enemy. He will judge you. You stand alone in the courtroom of God. Yet God saves. He can save you from that coming judgment. Save you from eternal punishment. Now, he is both God who saves and the man from Nazareth. He is Jesus the Nazarene. Nazareth was a humble village where Jesus grew up. It's interesting. Nazareth was a town known for its insignificance. It was notoriously insignificant, if there can be such a thing. In fact, when the Jewish leaders heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, they said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of East San Jose? Can anything good come out of V-Town, where I'm from? No. The God-man, Jesus the Nazarene, God who saves from Nazareth, this God-man lived in a historical place. He was a historical person. He is real. And he lived among us in order to save us. That is his name. God saves. Jesus but how would he save us? Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified, he describes him. How would this God-man save us? Well, there on the Roman cross, the God-man hung. He hung there, suffering a criminal's death. Now, he was not there for his own crimes. He was there for the crimes of humanity. 
Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, we have all committed eternal crimes of sin against God. Now, that's a whole nother level from running the stoplight. Your sin against God is not a misdemeanor. It's not even just a felony. It is cosmic treason. Your life of sin is a life of rebellion against your Creator. We have all done this. And our sentence for sin, our sentence for those crimes of sin, is eternal hell. Yet, in those short six hours of Jesus hanging there on the cross, he received, think about this, he received in those six hours an eternity of judgment. Does that stun you? Remember, you owe God an eternal punishment, an eternal payment, because you have sinned against an eternal God. You can't pay it off. You see? You can't. But Jesus, because he is God, because he is eternal, and his blood is priceless, those short hours paid humanity's sin for all eternity. To say it another way, an eternity of hell was condensed to a few hours there on the cross. This is only possible if Jesus is God, and he is. He is Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. But how do we know? How do we know that that this man, this God-man, was truly God? How do we know that he really did endure our eternal judgment in our place? How do we know that? Well, look what he says. Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified, he has risen. That's how you know. Now remember, we all owe God an eternity of judgment. That is our moral debt to God. You cannot pay that bill of debt on your own. But on the cross, Christ paid it for you. Your eternal moral debt to God. He paid it. For you. And so it's at, as it were at the bottom of your bill from God, where the bottom is just eternal payment. At the bottom of that bill, Jesus wrote in his own blood, paid in full. When he declared, it is finished, he declares, paid in full. No other payment necessary. And at the resurrection, with Jesus Christ rising from the grave, God's handwriting, as it were, comes down, and it, it is now God's handwriting saying, payment accepted. So on the cross, Christ writes, paid in full. And then at the empty tomb, God writes, payment accepted. We desperately 
desperately need the resurrection to be real and true, Christian. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. He must be raised. And he is. And so our faith is not worthless. And we are not still on our sins. But now Christ has been raised from the dead and he is alive today. Romans 4.25 says, He who has delivered, excuse me, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions was raised because of our justification. Christian, now you can stand in Christ's life declared righteous because he is alive you can be declared righteous in god's courtroom not just not guilty right not just not guilty not just acquitted but you'll be given as it were the the medal of honor the nobel peace prize jesus Gave his life to ransom you from eternal judgment. He came to, to save you from God's wrath. But you must receive his gift. He offers it, but you got to take it. You take it by faith. You take it by faith. You don't take it by saying, by repeating some prayer. You don't take it by throwing a pine cone into the fire at some summer camp. You don't take it by just raising your hand. No. You take it by faith. It is an inward action of the heart. And it's not something that you earn, right? Because faith is a gift from God. Faith is simply, I have nothing. Please fill my hands with the merits of Christ. That's faith. You must turn away from your sin, turn away from trying to earn God's favor, let go of all of your achievements, let go of your pride, and hold out those empty hands to receive God's grace by faith. In verse 7, I love this. He continues, But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Notice the command to tell the disciples and Peter. I love that. Why the special note of Peter? Well, just briefly, Peter was, of course, already included in one of the, as one of the disciples. He could have just said, but go tell his disciples, and Peter would be part of that. But why tell the disciples and Peter? Well, we know from Mark 14 that Peter had betrayed Jesus the night before. That when given the opportunity to stand by Christ's side, he abandoned him. He said, I don't know the man. As Christ was suffering the wrath of God, do Peter. Peter, as it were, was heaping more wrath upon Christ in his denial of him. When given a chance to remain loyal to Christ, to join him in his sufferings, Peter shrunk back in fear. Yet, here, 
there is this special invitation. I love that. There is a special invitation for Peter to come be with Jesus again. This special hand extended just for Peter. You see, our God is a God of second chances. And you, how about you? Have you neglected your Savior? Have you once told him that you love him, but now we can't really tell from your life? Have you betrayed him, denied him by your actions? What happened, friend? Dear child of God, you, you've denied him, with not, not so much with your mouth maybe, but with your life, with your actions. Dear saint, Christ still calls out to you, come back. Oh, how patient our Lord is. How tender His love for us. Friend, remember your Lord and come back to Him. Come back. Come back. Come back in humbleness, in repentance, and He'll forgive you and He'll meet you right there. Now, how would these women respond to such wonderful news? In verse 8, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, you would think that the women's response would be different, if nothing else. Just different. Well, to us, the modern-day reader, Mark's ending like this is very odd. However, words like trembling and astonishment and and afraid fit actually perfectly with the setting. Trembling is used for the attitude of people who deliver and and, and receive as well the word of God in 1 Corinthians 2 and 2 Corinthians 7. It's also used for the kind of attitude that we should have as we live the Christian life under the gaze of our Heavenly Father in Ephesians 6 and Philippians 2. So these women had heard God's announcement, God's word of the resurrection, and the right response actually was to tremble at his word. The word for astonishment here is also used in the Gospels for how people respond to Jesus' miracles. When he raised that little girl from the dead in Mark 5, when Jesus healed the man who was paralyzed, the man got up and picked his bed and walked home. It says that they were all struck with astonishment. Same word in Luke 5. These women had just witnessed one of Christ's greatest miracles rising from the dead. And so it's actually very appropriate that they were astonished in that moment. It says also that they were afraid. And again, that's the right response. The disciples were very afraid when Jesus calmed the raging sea by simply speaking to it. In Mark 4, the crowds were afraid when they saw Jesus deliver that demon-possessed man in Mark 5. The disciples were afraid when they saw Jesus walking on the water in the middle of the night in Mark 6. So, of course, being the first to witness the reality of, of Christ's power and authority over death, of course, these women are struck with fear, a holy, reverent fear, not dread, of some some ogre god or some dread of evil coming. No, in awe. This is the right response. 
But again, why not tell anyone? Well, we know that they did not remain silent. They did meet the disciples, and they did tell them that Jesus was alive in Luke 24. They eventually did tell others about Christ's resurrection. Mark's gospel actually is marked by moving very quickly. It begins quickly, doesn't, uh, doesn't give the account of Jesus' birth. It goes right into his ministry. It moves from one act of Jesus immediately, and actually that word immediately is repeated many times in Mark's gospel. So it's really no surprise that it would end so abruptly here. So as we think about the resurrection of Christ in the context of the whole life of Christ, what's the story of Jesus' life all about? What is, it, what is Jesus' life and mission really about according to Mark? Well, we read it earlier, Mark 10.45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. This is why Christ came. His resurrection proves that he accomplished his mission. So nothing else needs to be said. You see? That's the point. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for sinners. And the resurrection is God's declaration that the ransom payment was accepted. This is simply how Mark ends his story. So rather than having an incomplete ending, Mark left the ending of this story open, you could say. Because the story of, of the life of Jesus didn't end here. Because Jesus is still alive today. Also, the story of his followers did not end here. Because his followers are still around today. Aren't we, church? You see, Jesus' story continues to us today. So let me ask you, friend, if you don't know the Lord, how does the story of Jesus' life continue in your story today? Will you continue on in your unbelief? Or will you believe the announcement that Jesus is truly alive? Will you go and talk to a Christian and ask them if Jesus truly is alive? Christian, tell others about how Christ has paid your debt to God and ransomed your life from eternal judgment. Christian, rejoice, for Jesus is alive. He is alive and he lives on his throne. And he's alive and he lives in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for sending your son to die for us. That he would take our place. And that you have given us assurance of the gospel in the resurrection. We can be confident that our sins are truly forgiven as we look at that empty tomb. Thank you, Lord, for giving us that, that, that sign that says payment accepted. Thank you for not leaving it up to us to figure out or 